Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. This episode of Pardes from Jerusalem features Rabbi Michael Hatton on Parashat Vayahel Pekudeh. Be sure to catch more of Michael Hatton by downloading the Pardes Daily app and participating in the Passover Challenge. In the next three weeks leading up to Passover, you can explore multiple Jewish practices and texts to engage in the holiday. It is not too late to get started. Please visit www.pardes.org.il forward slash Pardes Daily. And now, here is Rabbi Michael Hatton. Parshat Vayakel Pikudei, the Altar of Sacrifice. The second half of Sefer Shemot concerns a single topic, the construction of the Mishkan, or Tabernacle. The material stretches over five lengthy parshiot, divided into two main sections. The first section, of Tirumah and Titzaveh, is phrased in the command form and relates God's commands to Moshe. The second part, composed of Parshiyot Vayakel and Pikudei, describes the fulfillment of those detailed provisions by the artisans and the people of Israel. There is almost perfect symmetry between the two sections. All of the descriptions concerning the vessels, the building elements, and the priestly garments that are related at the outset as part of the divine commands are repeated almost verbatim in the narratives of implementation. In the center of the two is the Parsha of Kitisa that jarringly divides the otherwise perfectly balanced account. Although that Parsha begins with topics that are relevant to the Mishkan undertaking, the focus quickly shifts to the episode of the golden calf and the smashing of the tablets. The placement of the golden calf precisely at the pivot point between the sections concerning the Mishkan is intentional, to sound a note of caution. The noble desire to provide transcendent God with a physical abode, a location where we might encounter and worship him, is one that is fraught with real danger. How easily can concrete symbols for profound truths become garish and crude objects of shallow veneration? How quickly can the worship of God be supplanted by the worship of the calf, a golden calf? We will attempt to summarize some of the most salient ideas associated with the Mishkan by considering the bronze altar, or the Mizbach HaNechoshet, mentioned towards the end of Parshat Pikudei, and then mentioned very prominently in the narratives of Sefer Vayikra that immediately follow. This large, square, bronze platform dominating the outer courtyard that surrounded the Mishkan was the location where the animal sacrifices took place. Its lengthy ramp extended southwards towards the linen curtains 
that marked the perimeter of the space, and upon its fiery top, the daily communal sacrifice burned morning and evening on behalf of all of the people of Israel. During the rest of the time, the personal sacrifices of individuals were presented, burnt offerings, guilt offerings, sin offerings, thanksgiving offerings. On Shabbat, Rosh Chodesh, or holidays, additional communal sacrifices were offered. In fact, the rabbis relate that for the altar to be idle at all was regarded as inauspicious. If there were no sacrifices that were scheduled to be brought, special communal offerings would be presented so that the bronze altar would never be inactive. In contrast to these animal sacrifices, the service of the incense, the ketoret, the showbread, and the kindling of the menorah were performed in the building proper, in the space known as the Kodesh. This holy precinct was separated from the Kodesh HaKodashim, the inner sanctum, the Holy of Holies, which housed the Ark of the Covenant by a richly embroidered dividing curtain. The activities associated with this sheltered space were of a more sanctified ritual value than those executed in the exterior uncovered courtyard where the bronze altar stood. Although other vessels might be holier, no other vessel could match the bronze altar either in size or unceasing operation. This altar was first introduced by the Torah in Parshat Tirumah. You shall fashion the altar out of acacia wood. It shall be five cubits in length and five cubits in width, so that the altar shall be square, and three cubits in height. You shall fashion its projections on its four corners, so that they are part of it, and you shall cover it with bronze. You shall prepare its shovels to clear its ashes, its sweepers and its basins, its forks and its firepans. All of its vessels shall be fashioned out of bronze. You shall make for it a screen after the manner of a bronze network. You shall make four rings upon that wet network at its extremities. You shall place it below the molding of the altar so that the network extends to half of its height. You shall prepare staves for the altar staves of acacia wood, you shall cover them with bronze. The staves shall be brought into its rings, so that the staves shall be on both sides of the altar when it is carried. You shall fashion it hollow out of boards, as it was shown to you upon the mountain, so shall you do. Shemot chapter 27 verses 1 to 8. This altar is composed of a number of separate elements. First, there is the frame itself, made out of boards of acacia wood covered with bronze overlay. Then there are four curious projections on each of the four corners, and a screen-like ornamental network that divides the altar's height into two. This division was important. Certain sacrifices had their blood placed above it, while others had the blood thrown below. Finally, there are the various tools, the shovels and the sweepers, to remove the ash, the basins to receive the blood, the forks to turn the sacrificial meats, the firepans 
to collect the glowing coals. But most remarkable about the altar is the last provision mentioned at the end of the section. You shall fashion it hollow out of boards, as it was shown to you upon the mountain. We may have thought that the bronze boards of the altar framed it on all sides as well as on top. We may have thought that the fire was kindled upon the bronze covering, and there the sacrifices were consumed by the flames. But it actually emerges that the altar had no top at all, except for the projections on each of the four corners. Instead, the bronze boards enclosed the sides of the altar, while the top was left wide open. How then were the sacrifices presented upon it? In this connection, Rashi quotes an early rabbinic tradition. He insists that they would fill its hollowness with earth when the people would encamp. The Rashbam states when they would encamp, then they would fill it with earth and sacrifice upon it. The Sforno offers a more detailed formulation. According to him, the altar was like a box with neither a bottom nor a top. They would fill its cavity with earth at the time of their encampment, and upon that earth, the perpetual fire would be kindled. As Sforno describes it, the bronze altar was really just a casing without a top or a bottom, a mold placed directly upon the ground into which earth would then be poured. All of these interpretations solve an otherwise serious difficulty. What would have prevented the overlaid wooden top from becoming scorched by the searing sacrificial flames? It emerges from this discussion that the flames were never in contact with anything except the sacrifice and the earth itself. In reconstructing the altar's accurate form, the commentaries direct us to another context, the aftermath of the revelation at Sinai in Shemot chapter 20. God said to Moshe, Thus shall you say to the people of Israel, You saw that I addressed you from the heavens. You shall fashion for me an altar of earth. You shall sacrifice upon it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your cattle, for at whatever place that I shall cause my name to be mentioned, there shall I come to you and bless you. Here the Torah enjoins the, earth, the construction of an earthen altar. Later, God will say, if you fashion for me an altar of stones, you shall not build it out of hewn stones, for by lifting upon it your sword, you have defiled it. Reconciling this description, the hollow overlaid boards of Parsha Tirumah connects directly with what is reported in the first altar variation in Shmot chapter 20. Why is it that if all the vessels of the Mishkan, only the bronze altar was organically attached to the earth? What could be the significance of a service that was performed upon a summit of dust so that nothing intervened between the consuming fire above and the hallowed ground of the courtyard below. There is a strict hierarchy that informs the entire structure and organization of the Mishkan. 
It is expressed in terms of the spaces, the materials, and the utility, and it argues for a secondary status for the sacrificial service performed upon the bronze altar. The most sanctified spaces of the Mishkan complex were those associated with the building proper, the Holy of Holies and the Holy, not the space of the exterior courtyard where the bronze altar stood. The most precious materials, the gold, the silver, the sky blue, purple, and crimson, were used in the fashioning of the vessels and curtains for the interior spaces of the building. The bronze and the simple white linen were reserved for the external altar and for the curtains that surrounded the exterior courtyard. The most exalted services, the offering of the incense, the kindling of the menorah, the presentation of the showbread, were performed in the tabernacle itself. The exterior courtyard was reserved for the service of the animal sacrifices. All of these distinctions provide circumstantial evidence for Maimonides' controversial claim that animal sacrifice at the Mishkan was a divine concession rather than an ideal, a compromise with the primitive forms of worship that were then current among all peoples of the world. As Maimonides explains in his Guide to the Perplexed, service of the gods through sacrifice was familiar to the ancient Israelites through their contact with other nations. It was not easily to be surrendered in favor of a more advanced form of worship, such as prayer or meditation. While Maimonides does not develop the theory further, his approach would shed light on the distinctions that we noted earlier. The real service that spoke of worshipping God with the heart and with the mind would be performed in the sheltered space of the Mishkan proper, where the ignorant masses dared not tread. Here, the sweet-smelling incense would arise from the miniature golden altar like a delicate prayer. The kindling of the flames upon the menorah's seven branches proclaimed God as the source of all wisdom. The twelve heavy loaves placed upon the golden table asserted that not by bread alone does man live, but by all the words of God. And beyond the richly embroidered entrance curtain that shielded these devotions from ignorant eyes, the Israelite throngs would observe the animal sacrifices, filling the outer courtyard with their excited chatter. But we need not take our cue from Maimonides in the guide, especially since in the Mishneh Torah, in his code, Rambam will argue that the sacrificial service has an intrinsic value. Therefore, instead of regarding the service of the bronze altar as inferior to the service within the building, perhaps we ought to view the service as an allowance. Perhaps we ought to instead regard both services as necessary, intertwined elements of the same spiritual progression. Serving God is a process rather than an event. It is composed of a series of successive steps calculated to culminate in an authentic encounter with the divine. The ultimate objective is intimate and unfiltered communion. The architectural ordering of the Mishkan implies, however, that there is much work to be done along the way. There are no shortcuts 
that could allow a person to sidestep the first preparations. It is this it is as if the Mishkan was organized like a series of concentric circles, each one representing a higher level of spiritual sensitivity. The service of the bronze altar was therefore not a Maimedean diversion, but rather the critical first step in the process of approach, the prerequisite for everything that followed. But what exactly is the content of this first step? In what way does the service of the, of the bronze altar launch us upon an encounter with the divine? Both the Ramban as well as the Ibn Ezra accept the provocative idea of substitution to explain the matter of the sacrificial service. They acknowledge the obvious argument that an absolute and incorporeal God has no need for physical sustenance, and therefore they suggest that the purpose of sacrifice relates more to the needs of the one who presents the sacrifice rather than to those of God. Slattering the animal, dismembering its limbs, sprinkling its blood upon the altar, offering the flesh upon the fire, the supplicant is supposed to feel the gravity of his misdeeds as if he were deserving of a similar sorry end were it not for divine compassion. The explanation strikes us as grotesque, but the main point is well taken. The sacrificial service is calculated, according to this reading, to unleash a spiritual transformation of the one who presents the sacrifice and not simply to mollify a guilty conscience. We can temper this theory by suggesting, rather than sacrifices speaking of direct substitution, they more symbolically speak of selective personification. In other words, it is not the hapless devotee that is being metaphorically consumed by the flames for his gross misdeeds, but rather his animal nature. The sacrifice of the animal, animal upon the altar is really a way of indicating that connection with God can only be accomplished if a person is, if a person is willing to let go of his animalistic passions and submit his lower harsher character traits to the refining flames, the, basic ins the baser instincts of selfishness, greed, lust, hubris, that we gleefully exercise to our detriment must be overcome if we are to meaningfully acknowledge and serve God. A person enslaved to baser passions so that he is inconsiderate of his fellow's body or things cannot be ushered into God's awesome presence. And so these strivings must be harnessed and directed, baser matter incinerated, so that the supplicant might advance. And thus we return to the altar of earth, for the earth is symbolic of our material selves, the bodies of flesh that we inhabit and that we must make holy. In the altar, the earth is raised up high, held in check, as it were, by the structure of the divine laws, a powerful expression of our desire to consecrate the mundane and to soar heavenwards to God. We are undoubtedly creatures of the earth, fashioned by the Creator out of its dust. But still, we seek to rise above 
the physicality that holds us back. And therefore the bronze altar is left uncovered so that the animal sacrifices that speak of overcoming coarse desire take place upon the heaped up earth. This very earth betrays our terrestrial origins, but it also directs us heavenwards towards higher accomplishment. We are like all other creatures of this world, but we are also, unlike any of them, capable of surpassing its limitations to encounter God. The animal self is offered to him, the base passions are overcome, and the lowly earth from which we were fashioned is raised up. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you again for downloading this podcast, a production of the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. If you liked what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. Tune in next week to listen to Rabbi Dr. Mish Hammer Kasoy as she discusses Parashat Vayikra. Thanks for listening.